You know, God, we recognize our utter and absolute dependence on the Spirit's work in us to revive us, to warm us, to convict us, to lead us, to comfort us. And we do indeed pray that the Spirit of the living God would brood over these waters, that He would attend what is going on in this room. And as we leave here, that we might know, that we might sense that what we have experienced is something that has been authored and inspired by your Holy Spirit. We understand, O God, that the flesh profits nothing. It's not a little something that we can do. It is nothing. And we pray that by the rich indwelling of your Holy Spirit, that you would call out our hearts from the mundane, the routine, and allow us and enable us to fix our minds on the everlasting, the eternal, the infinite. And might our worship please you today. Father, I also would pray that in a few minutes as we gather around this table, that you'll remind us with these common elements of the cornerstone of our faith, that that the only thing that matters is not how many good works we have performed, The only thing that matters is our relationship with the one whose body was broken and whose blood was spilt. Oh God, might we be, might we find ourselves drawn into the presence of Christ as we are here today, do that by your sovereign spirit. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We, uh, we pray that you will use the new leadership that is now established in Washington, that they might have a sense of the eternal and the divine, that they might recognize that just because they have won a public, uh, a, a vote count that was in their favor, that what we need is a group of humbled men and women before your throne of grace pleading for mercy and wisdom. Now, Father, accept our gifts. Compared to what's left in our checking accounts, they're small. But use them, every dime of them, to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Malachi, which uh, is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2. And and while you're turning there, let me... uh, just simply thank you for all of your kind um, supports and concerning our um, announcement that is that Susie and I might be spending three months in Budapest in the winter. Uh, I can tell you that since last Sunday, there are some things that have muddied the waters a bit. Uh, we have some very sick parents, and um, that might be a problem. But uh, other than that, we uh, we covet your prayers and find this to be so outrageous that God must somehow be in it. You follow as I read. Uh, I'm beginning at verse 13, and I'll read through verse 16 of chapter 2 of the book of Malachi. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. 
And she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For he covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Gang, we're in the sixth of seven sermons on, a, on discussing the topic of marriage. And um, I, I have to admit that I come to the pulpit with a, a measure of reluctance this morning. In fact, these last two, this week and next week, we'll be covering subjects that I would really just as soon avoid. Um, of course, I think you can tell from the text that the subject that we will address this morning is divorce. And as I said, I would rather avoid it. Why? Well, here's my primary reason. There's several reasons. But one of them is because I know many of you who sit out here this morning listening to all this are divorced. And some of you are divorced for very good reasons. I understand that there are times, ladies and gentlemen, where divorce is not only an option, it is the best option. I understand that. If that weren't true, Jesus would have never addressed it. He would have never included it in the New Testament. It is indeed an issue that is fractious and, and is hurtful, but I understand and um, having dealt with singles for six years, as I've told you, I, I watched as people limped for months, yea, years, as they tried to get over the heartbreak of divorce. And so I would come along their side and say things like, there's life after divorce. So that's one of the reasons, pastorally speaking, I would like to avoid it. I don't want in any measure... To increase your sorrow or your guilt. I'm not trying to resurface issues. I'm, I, none of that is in my mind. The, um, the only thing that I can um, say to you who have some regrets in the past is that I can point you to the God of all grace and mercy. And I can say to you something that I love to say. Jesus will forgive you and so will we. Now let's get on with it. But I am here this morning... To save marriages. I'm not, I can't do anything about the past. I'm here to try and influence the future. So here goes. I have uh, a newsletter from James Dobson. I think many of you get it. I really don't. This was given to me by a brother in the audience. Um, and he was discussing the issue of divorce. He referenced a, a study that was conducted by the... Um, uh, family, let's see, the National Survey of Family and Households, uh, an agency for the, out of the Institute of American Values in New York. And they um, examined 645 marriages that were considered to be unhappy marriages. Um, I want to read to you simply two paragraphs from that study. 
which I think, at least I hope, will debunk the modern myth that someone in a troubled marriage is faced with the choice between either staying in a miserable relationship or getting a divorce to be more happy. Listen to these startling pieces of data. Uh, the results of these interviews were astounding. They revealed that a full two-thirds of the unhappily married spouses who stayed married were actually happier five years later. Among those who initially rated their marriage as very unhappy but remained together, nearly 80% considered themselves happily married and much happier five years later. Do you get that? These couples that hung in their marriages were interviewed five years later. They started with bad marriages. Five years later, after hanging in for five years, they're saying 80% of them says, my marriage is much happier and I personally am much happier. One more paragraph. Surprisingly, the opposite is found to be true for those who divorced. The Institute of American Values study confirmed that divorce frequently fails to make people happy because... While it might provide a respite from the pain associated with a bad marriage, it also introduces a host of complex new emotional and psychological difficulties over which the parties involved have little control. They include child custody battles, emotionally scarred children, economic hardships, loneliness, future romantic disappointments, and so on. This helps explain why of all the unhappy spouses in the initial survey, only 19% of those who got divorced or separated were happy five years later. Now, guys, um, one other thing I want to say. I want you to understand that if you're here in an unhappy marriage, I by no means am trying to make light of and minimize the magnitude of your sorrow and grief. Um, I know that you face some very complex issues. And I'm not trying to say they'll go away. I'm not saying that. The first five sermons of this series would prove that. And I encourage you to get the tapes. So please don't hear me. If you're out there suffering in a very unhappy marriage, that I think your problems are small and you're making more of them than, they, than you ought to. I'm not saying that. I'm simply trying to encourage you to hang on. Now, to do that, ladies and gentlemen, I feel like I could stand up here and do my best to wax eloquent for the next 15, 20 minutes, and I would fail you. I wanted you to hear from someone whose words I hope will be far, far more weighty than mine. I wanted you to hear from my friend, Bill Garner, who has, I think, 99% of you already know, went through a terribly painful divorce a couple years back. It is he that I think can speak with a voice of authority. Bill. Well, my family's praying for me. I hope you are, too. I'd say... Uh difficult thing to stand up here in front of you <clears throat> this morning 
I am, um, was the executive pastor here at the church for seven years. Uh, five years ago, uh, I went through a marital train wreck that uh, Jimmy has referred to this morning as a divorce. And uh, so I am a qualified expert in this area, and that's why Jimmy has asked me to speak here this morning. I know something about uh, divorce and what it's like to go through it and what it's like to have a failed marriage. It's my hope that through what I'm telling you this morning, that I might be able to persuade you to choose other options if that's an option that you're considering for your marriage at this point. I believe in this institution. I love the institution of marriage. And uh, again, I hope that through what I say that God might use this in your life to uh, help move you forward toward a healthy, positive relationship with your spouse. I first wanted to tell you that I am I'm not here to assign any blame for the failures inside my marriage. I can only tell you, tell you that the fruit of that failure was bitter. My family has paid a great price to the creditors we know as pain and agony. We continue to pay. I've watched my children suffer. Some of the visual images will haunt me until I die. It would break your heart. It's broken mine. We're all familiar with grief, and, and, um, and um, it is not a fun thing. It's not an enjoyable experience to go through processes that create uh, so much pain and misery in your life, let alone the lives of your children. I've also learned some things about myself, and uh, to my shame, through this entire process and in its aftermath, I've acted in ways that can only validate the true depth of depravity found in the human heart. I have not handled myself uh, well in every situation. I do not feel like Job, who was, uh, maintains his integrity. I have, I have failed in many, many ways. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 72, 73, chapter, uh, chapter 73, verses 21 and 22. He said, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I can tell you that I have grown through this experience. And even though it was a severe judgment from God, I felt his mercy and his grace is sufficient. I do not advocate the process of learning those things. I don't find that we are to choose sin or failure as a means for grace to abound. We can experience grace and mercy and learn things without going through the severity of the things that I went through. I promise you that. I know that God is using me. I feel like God is healing my life at this point. And I know that further down the road, I, I, I think I'll be able to share some of the good things about what God's doing in my life uh, with you. I hope I can do that. Uh, I am a sinner, and that's what I'm trying to convey to you this morning. I've got a sad story. Uh, I'm fully aware of my need for grace. I wish I could hide this ugly story. Uh, I'd love to hide it, but I can't. I was reading a book uh, recently by Brennan Manning. And he said this, and it struck home with me. He said, Christians who remain in hiding continue to live the lie. We deny the reality of our sin. In a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. 
If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become as light for others. My prayer and hope today is that the Lord Jesus would shine forth his light to keep you from stumbling down a dark road that might even seem right to you, but whose end is destruction. God mentions several stories in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, stories all about failure. In these stories, there was failure. God brought judgment. And uh, later on in that chapter, he talks about temptations and so forth. But there's a statement made in that chapter that these things happened as an example for us that we might learn from these things. And so what I'm hoping today is that you might learn from my failure, from my mistakes, and that you might not make some of the same, same mistakes that I made. Most mistakes in marriages are very small and mostly unintentional. I've never met anyone, nor did I, desire to, who desired to have a bad marriage. If I was to uh, poll the audience today, I'm sure that most of you would say your desire is to have a good marriage, a good, healthy marriage. No one in here that, I, that I've ever met, at least, or has ever confronted me, has told me that their goal in life is to have an unhealthy, bad marriage. And yet there are many unhealthy marriages in this room today. Perhaps you do not, you're not even aware of that. I wasn't aware of mine either, but it was unhealthy. I've seen people intentionally and unintentionally withhold the necessary ingredients required for a healthy marriage. And so while it's true that I went through a divorce, I'm hoping that perhaps some of the things that I learned in the process might keep you from heading down that same road. I've seen numerous counselors, read all sorts of books, been to intense uh, counseling sessions for, for weeks at a time, and uh, I want to share some of the things I've learned with you so that, uh, in essence, you might be able to put the shingles on the roof before the rainstorm while there's still time. You might be able to take a look and do some serious inventory in your marriage to see if, in fact, it's what you want it to be. I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with Gary Smalley. Uh, I spent hours with Gary Smalley talking to him through this whole process, and he related stories to me. Perhaps you've read some of the stories or heard them yourselves, how that he neglected his wife to the point that she shut down on him, and it took him two years for her to open up again with him. He told me of a seminar uh, that he was leading in Hawaii, conducting for hundreds of couples, that right before the meeting started, he and his wife had a huge blowout, and it was just symptomatic of deeper problems. Uh, but the day went past. He did the seminar. He couldn't leave. He did the seminar, and later that night was confronted by a waitress telling him what a great man he was and how he'd saved the marriage, and his wife was there listening, and he walked out of the room later and kind of nudged his wife said, what do you think? And he said, I think you ought to get the tapes. And so uh, marriages can be unhealthy and bad, and even the experts have problems. If you've read John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, he talks about 10 years after he was married, he was considering the possibility of divorce. He wasn't happy. There's a lot of marriages where you find unhappiness. Marriages grow stale. People grow apart. Let me talk to you about three things that I learned in this whole process that I think would help you, if you can remember these things, can help improve your marriage. First, Establish boundaries in your marriage that are consistent with the purposes of God. There's a passage in Psalm 74 that says, It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. 
Faithfulness and commitment to God first and to the marriage itself secondly are absolutely required. Burn every other option now. Burn the bridges. No turning back, no way out. The solutions found in books like The Bridges of Madison County are recipes for disaster. Fernando Cortez came to Mexico in 1519, and when he got here, he arrived with 700 men, 11 ships. They got off the boats, got on shore, and Hernando Cortez went and set the boats on fire, set the ships on fire. Why? Because he wanted the men to know there was no way back. There was no way out. God has established this institution, and when we violate the boundaries that God has established, there are terrible consequences to that. So men and women in this room, make that type of commitment to your spouse that there are no options. We are going to make this marriage work. We will consider no other options because these are the boundaries that God has established. And when you, when you step outside those things, when you take matters into your own hands, it reminds me of the story of the sorcerer's apprentice who, uh, had, who was working on bringing forth some spells and conjuring up demons. And he says this at the very end. He says, Master, I am in great distress. The spirits that I conjured up, I cannot now get rid of. Do not, do not invite disaster into your home. Set boundaries, again, that are consistent with the purposes of God. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, The point of our lives is not to get smart or to get rich or to even get happy. The point is to discover God's purposes, God's boundaries, and to make them our own. Very simply stated, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But first, I can tell you, for by, for, because it's a fact, your marriage will never get any better until you are sure that it's going to survive. And if both parties are not committed to its absolute survival, it's going to be hard to improve the quality of your marriage. Burn the bridges. No other options. Stay there. Make it work. Secondly, don't give up hope. Satan is a liar. And he comes to us to supplant the words of God. And there are many people sitting here in a room like this saying, is this as good as it's going to get? Will it ever improve? Can things be better? And my answer to you is, yes, they can be better. Jimmy provided an illustration of that this morning. That if you'll hang in there, if you're faithful, if you trust the Lord, Depend upon Him. Do the things that you can do. You can't control another person. You can't govern another person. You can't change another person. You can only work on yourself. But Satan's job and his, his whole design in life, you know, he knows that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so what's he do? He comes in, he supplants hope. He tells you things won't get better. He or she will always be this way. I'm telling you, that's not the truth. Again, why? Because nobody wants to have a bad marriage. Nobody desires to have an unhealthy marriage. 
If they desire that, they're foolish. There's something wrong. They're, they're mentally unstable. That's no one's desire. It's not your husband's desire. It's not your wife's desire. But you've got to be willing to do something about it. I think part of the problem is we don't understand each other. Let me mention a few things to you about understanding each other. Men, your wife needs for you to be affectionate. She needs that from you. She needs your attention. She needs for you to pursue her at the expense of other things in your life. Maybe your hobbies. Maybe some of the desires you have. She needs that from you. She wants to be the beauty. She wants to know. She needs to know that you think she's pretty. That you think she's smart. That that she does a good job as a mother. That she's a good person. She needs to hear these things from you. And it's hard sometimes to do that. But she needs those things from you. She wants you to come home and tell her that you love her. She wants you to call her occasionally from work just to tell her, I was thinking about you. She needs all this from you. And it's not, that, it's not all that hard to give it to her. But those are some of the things that she needs. She needs to be the beauty in your life. And she needs to know that you are pursuing her. And she needs to see it, demonstrate it in small ways. She needs romance. She needs flowers. She might not like chocolate. Give it to her anyway. Do things for her, small things. It doesn't take great things, typically it's small things. Women, your husbands need to know this. I'm not real good with the women because I'm, I'm not one, but I, I can, I've read about these things. Uh, with the men, I can tell you what men need. Your husbands need to know that he's enough. They need to know that. He is enough for you, that you find satisfaction in him. You know, most men are afraid. I've read this and I agree with it, but most men are afraid. They're afraid that when it really comes down to it, they're afraid that they won't have what it takes. That's the way most men are. That's the way most of us are. I know that's the way that, that I am. When it really comes down to it, there's a fear that what I got isn't very much and it probably won't be enough. But he needs for you to believe in him, to honor him, to respect him. He needs to uh, know that he can do it and that you believe he can do it. You know, I think men are afraid to offer what they have because they know down deep inside again in their guts that they, uh, they might fail. Eldridge said this in his book, uh, Wild at Heart. He said, I married my wife without ever resolving or even knowing the deeper questions of my own soul. Sound familiar? Suddenly, the day after the wedding, I am faced with the reality that I now have this woman as my constant companion, and I have no idea what it means to really love her, nor if I have whatever it is she needs from me. What if I offer her all that I have as a man, and it's not enough? That's a risk I was not willing to take. My strength was being called for, and I really doubted that I had any. Eldridge also says this later on. He says, one problem, the biggest problem between men and women is that we men, when asked to truly fight for her, hesitate. It's not because we don't want to. It's not because we don't love you. It's not because you're not the beauty in our lives. It's because we're still seeking to save ourselves. We've forgotten the deep pleasure of spilling our life for another. That's who men and women are. 
and understand there's a big difference there in terms of who we are. And that's okay. Differences are good. The third thing that I wanted to say to you before I step down is communicate with each other. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Truly. Communicate with each other. Ladies, don't assume your husband knows what you're feeling. He doesn't. Men read newspapers. They do not read minds. You have to communicate directly with your spouse and tell him where the cuts are. Because most men are very willing to put the band-aids where the cuts are if they know where the cuts are. (laughs) Excuse me. We just have a hard time figuring out where the cuts are. Same thing, ladies, with you. Put the, put the band-aids where the cuts are. You know, and that requires from all of us sacrifice. It requires from both of us, from both the, the husband and the wife, that they're willing to give. And uh, that, that's the last thing I would say about marriage is that marriage, a healthy marriage is all about give and take. Most marriages go bad when somebody decides they're not willing to give or take forgive any longer. These are the words that I wanted to share with you this morning. Um, I hope that they benefit you. I do not advocate uh, divorce. Uh, I am a 45-year-old man who stands before you, the last person thinking he would ever be standing here talking about divorce. It's irony to me. But this is where I am. I don't believe God's finished with me yet. I believe I've experienced and tasted of his grace, mostly through my failure. But again, I'm not advocating that you go out and fail intentionally to experience God's grace. Experience that same grace that he gives, even in failure, in success in your marriage. Because for marriages to succeed, it takes the grace of God. It takes his grace. Speak to your spouse. If, If things aren't working out with you, Tell them. Tell them what's going on in your life. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. I hope that those words will be far weightier than any I could have produced. I add only this. Do the right thing long enough. May we pray. Our Father, indeed, it takes grace to make a marriage work, but we live by sheer grace. And we arrive at this table as people who are needy, who are starved for a fresh supply of grace. That that favor from heaven that we've never earned nor deserve, but is available to sinners who are joined to Christ by faith. And so, Father, we, we pray that you will meet us around this table. Each individual, might we find our sustenance from these common elements. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.